Amen. This morning I want to share a scripture from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5. I know our minds are on Mother's Day and so on, uh, but I want to share a message this morning that really is more of uh, probably an expose than it is an expository message on the scripture. Just some things that uh, the Lord's been speaking to me about and challenging me in, and it does lead, as we'll see eventually, into uh, our theme, Come Get Your Fill, and for what we are asking the Lord to do in our midst in the days ahead. Matthew chapter 5, reading from the New Living Translation, verse 13 to 16, uh, Jesus says these words, You are the salt of the earth, but what good is salt if it has lost its flavor? Can you make it salty again? It will be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. You are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, would you read this last verse with me? Let your good deeds shine out for all to see, so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. Let your good deeds shine out for all to see, so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. Well, as I mentioned already this morning, I want to talk about, in light of our theme, Come Get Your Fill, of a fullness that the Lord wants to bring into our lives by the Holy Spirit, but a fullness that is not just for us, but there might really be a heart that would say, Lord, do something in me that would really give me a new outlook in this day in which we live. All of the issues that are converging today that can make life so challenging and sometimes discouraging Lord, would you help me to see what you see? Would you do a fresh work of your Holy Spirit, a fresh Pentecost in 2016, that I, as a follower of Christ, that we, as a congregation of believers, that we would truly be able to infiltrate and penetrate the spirit of our culture and to see many people come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. The Bible foretells that in the last days in which I believe we are living, that a couple of things would characterize the culture in which we live. One is that knowledge would abound. There would just be this exponential explosion of information and knowledge, and of course we see that. And also, Jesus said in Luke 21 that people would actually begin to be terrified by the things that they see. Uh, not just the apocalyptic things, a lot of programs on that line today, but, but just the way culture is changing. And, and basically, we live in a culture today where you can watch the evening news, and, and at the end of the news, the attitude quite often is, what more can happen? Or where is this all leading? We live in that day. We live in a day of global terrorism. We live in a day of a refugee crisis. We live in a day of a threatening, collapsing global economy. Uh, we live in a day, if you haven't noticed, of a new morality, or what is called a new moral code. And, and the question for us as followers of Jesus Christ is, how do we make sense of all these issues, and how do we speak into a culture that is growing increasingly hostile against Jesus and all who represent him? I really believe that it is harder today to be a Christian it is harder today to be a Christian leader than it was even 10 years ago. A decade ago, many people viewed the church as irrelevant. What does that mean? It means, well, the church, you know, it, it, it's kind of out of sight, out of mind. 
Uh, it's not really uh, important. It doesn't really play a significant role in culture. And therefore, I can kind of easily dismiss it. Uh, it's nice that churches are around, that religious people have a place to go, but I don't feel any responsibility to be there. I can remember when I was a child, and I know that um, I'm not that old, but I, I guess I am. I'm looking at the youth. They're going, no, man, you're old. You know, 54. Yeah, you're, you're half dead, which I guess technically is true, uh, probably two-thirds. But I can remember, even as a, an eight-year-old child, uh, leaving for church on Sunday, and if your neighbor wasn't going to church, the blinds were closed. You know, I mean, they just want, they didn't, you know, they didn't want you to know that they were home. And nobody was mowing their lawn. Nobody was outside. Like, it was, it was Sunday. There was just a social responsibility, it seems, or conditioning that Sunday was for church. Well, of course, that changed, and we came to a place in our society where the church was viewed as not being that relevant. But these past, I would say, even couple of years, with all that's been happening around the world, that thinking has shifted from viewing the church as irrelevant to beginning to think of the church as extreme. And what that means is that Christians are no longer these harmless people, but they're actually part of the problem. The church is part of the problem. Their morality is part of the problem. And the problem needs to be controlled, or at the very most, it actually needs to be removed because extremism, of course, hurts the rest of our society. Now, when we say extremism, we kind of think of people strapping bombs around them and killing many people. And, of course, in our culture, that is understood as violent extremism, and most in our culture, obviously, if not all, are against that. But the difference that we're seeing today is there is a new kind of fanaticism that is actually called social extremism. That bridges a little bit of a different gap here. In a recent article in the Huffington Post, Reverend Franklin Graham was referred to as a religious extremist because, of course, some of his worldview uh, differs from the mainstream. Another article called him America's most dangerous Islamophobe. And so what we're seeing is that the opposition is not against necessarily anything that he's doing. The opposition is against what he thinks. It's against what he believes. It's against what he is expressing. I read a uh, Barna Omni poll that was actually conducted only several months ago, back in August of 2015. And 1,000 adults were surveyed, and these were adults who had no particular faith. Uh, they were either atheistic or agnostic, just didn't really care much about worrying about God. And they were simply asked whether or not they considered the following religious activities or beliefs as extreme. Here were some of the responses. 83% of those surveyed believe that converting someone to your faith is a form of social extremism. 52% said that praying for a stranger in public is extremism. 47% said leaving your job to do some kind of mission work would make you a religious extremist. 75% said that believing that sex between people of the same gender is wrong makes you an extremist. And 34% said that if you wait until marriage to have sex, that you're extreme. Interesting. We're living in a different day. You see, most of us as followers of Jesus Christ, week in and week out, just the, what we think, what we believe, what we preach is being viewed as extremists. And of course, many people don't hold the same view, 
And yet among those who weren't atheist or who weren't agnostic but had maybe some kind of religious background, it's interesting that even among that group, 79% say that you can do whatever you want on Sunday mornings in your churches as long as you don't allow your beliefs to affect the broader culture. So even though you're not viewed as extreme, you should still keep your beliefs to yourself. Now, of course, that is not logically possible for us who are followers of Jesus Christ because we believe that life is better with Jesus. Amen? We believe that Jesus is truth and he brings truth and he brings love and healing and wholeness and, and revelation to show us how to live life to the full. And we also believe that Jesus has some very countercultural things to say about sin and about relationships and morality and sexuality and everything else. And all of these things, of course, don't really line up with what may be socially acceptable, but we still believe that even if you disagree, that people have the right to hear. And they have the right to at least consider the words of Jesus for themselves. And that's really a challenge in a culture that is always modifying the truth. It's a challenge for believers who live in a day in a culture that is always changing the terminology in the name of tolerance and is always changing the rules. I was thinking even just this past week how the terminology has changed. For many of us who go back 25, 30 years, we know that what used to be called abortion, of course, is now called pro-choice. It's a whole different spin. Uh, as recently, some of you may have picked this up, but what used to be called assisted suicide is now called what? Assisted death. You see, it, it just takes that, that stigma away that you're not committing suicide, you're just, helping, you're just allowing someone to put you to death. So it just doesn't sound as bad. Um, if you listen to the Academy Awards this past year, you'll notice with the whole uh, Bruce Jenner type thing that was going on, that they introduced a new, a new uh, term for what we used to call sex change or sex reassignment, that now it's called sexual confirmation surgery. Sexual confirmation. And that's a dramatic shift in the way our society is being conditioned to think because what we want to do now in our culture is we want to confirm who you are inside. We want to confirm what you are thinking, what you're feeling, whatever it is that you want to be. And so the key to your happiness is basically finding a way for you to get or for you to be what it is that you most desire. And the spinoff of that is the belief that the answer to a peaceful society is not for people to change. It's not for people to be the things that we commonly associate with Christ calling us to be, but the answer to a peaceful society is to never disapprove of somebody else's life choices. That's how we'll find peace. That's, that is the kind of new wisdom of the day. In fact, 91% of those surveyed believed that the best way to find yourself is to actually look inside yourself. Now, what that means is that as a culture, you don't need any exterior authority speaking into your life. You don't need to be told what to do, whether it's by the government or by the education system, by your teachers. You don't need to be told what to do, certainly by the Bible or Christians or, or any religious group. Nobody knows you as well as you know yourself. And so the key to your happiness is not so much in you changing, it's in the circumstances around you changing. And of course, we, we see that being lived out. The Apostle Paul said this, he said in, in 2 Corinthians 4, people do not believe because their minds have been kept in the dark by the evil God of this world. 
He keeps them from seeing the light shining on them, the light that comes from the good news. What, what Paul's referring to is what the Bible talks about as the spirit of the age. And that's why Paul also says the Ephesians people, you've got to understand that our fight, our argument, our contention, it's not against people. It's against a spirit of this age. It's against demonic powers that blind people, lest they see the light of Christ and the love of Christ that's all around them, lest they surrender to his love and his truth and be set free. So the devil has incredible, sophisticated, brilliant schemes to actually deceive people into believing the lie. And that's where many find themselves today. And it's this new morality that we as followers of Jesus Christ, we need to understand and we need to resolve to live counter to. Not counter to people, but counter to the spirit of this age that is deceiving people. And I say this in all kindness, but research shows is also deceiving a majority of Christian people. That our lives and our values, our priorities, our passions, our pursuits, our priorities are a whole lot different from those who don't know any different. Why is that? Why is there such a grayness in between believers and non-believers oftentimes when it comes to these kind of values? I believe it's because the average Christian today does not give the Holy Spirit opportunity to renew their mind. The average Christian today does not give God opportunity to shape their lives and to shape their values. And so if it's just a matter of sitting in church for an hour or two once a week or, or being exposed, I don't know, to some program on TV or whatever it is that may be the habit, we're just not going to think any differently than most people. You see, the average Christian today, we're told statistically, today in the body of Christ, about 20% of the people read God's Word on any kind of regular basis. Another 20% on the other end never read the Word of God at all. So what does that mean? It means there's no opportunity for the light of God's truth to penetrate the darkness that surrounds us where we live and work every single day, what we watch on TV, whatever it may be. There's no opportunity for God to begin to balance that or counter that or to have an opportunity to say, hey, 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 wait, 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 that's not true. That's not true, or this does matter, whatever it may be. And the rest, of course, are somewhere in between. We also have a new paradigm in the body of Christ today where statistics tell us that a regular churchgoer uh, is found in the church builder in the house of God on average of 1.7 times per month. And, and I can bear that out. Uh, we have numbers as far as people who say, glad Todd yes, is my church. But that number differs vastly, and we can look at that list and say, yeah, we know them, know them, know them, know them, know them, but whether it's certain seasons of the year or whether it's cloudy outside, whatever the reason may be, you know, we just don't feel like being in the house of God. There's something else on. There's something else that has our heart. So there's not an opportunity. I mean, don't you feel it yourself, even those of you who may come to the house of God on a regular basis? I find even in between that seven-day period, though I have a private time with the Lord, there's something about coming corporately together in the presence of the Lord and worshiping the Lord. There's something of a renewing and a refreshing and just even maybe in teaching, whatever it may be, that the Lord is an opportunity to minister to us and through us one to another. Well, 
If the house of God's not part of our lives, then of course it's very difficult for God to do that. So we can see with some of these statistics and these realities how difficult it is to start thinking in a way that is actually counter to the evil God of this world. It is very difficult for us as believers to begin to think in a way in which we are not God, that we are not the center of the universe. Jesus said in Matthew 6, your heart will always be where your treasure is. And what he's talking about is what we value. What you value is what you treasure. Now, now, values can be something that are very difficult to articulate. We've been going through a strategic planning uh, uh, exercise with some people in our church over these last eight or ten weeks, and we've been going through uh, some of the values and really trying to articulate that, and it really takes some time to think those things through. And oftentimes, we don't really think through our values, but I can tell you this, the values of our culture, though they may be difficult to articulate, they are easily seen on what's, what's on TV. They're easily seen in our commercials, they're seen in our movies, they're seen in the magazines, they're seen in all different forms of media, uh, everywhere you look. And the message of, the, of our culture, the value is simply this, that you should have what you really want in life, that life is about experiences, and life is about pleasure, and life, of course, is about possessions and living life to the full. Now, let me be clear, that's not altogether wrong. The problem is this, Satan does not create anything. All Satan does is he distorts what God creates. He distorts, twists, perverts the truth of God so that it's an imitation of it, but in following the devil's deception, we never experience the fullness of what God intends by that truth. We always miss it. It's kind of like taking off a runway on a plane toward a destination that's maybe 500 miles away. Well, we're only one degree off. It's so close. But as you travel 500 miles, that one degree over 500 miles may take you a couple hundred miles off your course. And so we see that same spirit at work in our culture. And so much of what we've come to believe, even as Christians in today's society, is a distortion of the truth that God intends for us. Jesus said, the devil has come to rob you, to steal from you, ultimately to destroy you. But I've come to give you life in all its fullness. That is the promise of God. That's what he wants to do. And he does that. But here's the key. Here's the difference in the gospel of Jesus Christ and the gospel of this age. That fullness of life is found when you understand this simple life principle. It's not about you. It's not about you. You see, Jesus said something radical. If you want to find life, you've got to lay down your life, and then you'll find it. Because you see, everything in this culture, in fact, just turn the TV on and watch a few commercials. What's the theme? It's about you. You deserve this. You should have this. This is the life you should be living. It's all about you. And what happens, that spirit that is at work within us says, you're right. I have to have that. I've got to drive that. I've got to live there. I've got to dress that way. I've got to have those toys. I've got to have that vacation. I've got to have those pleasures. It's about me. And Jesus says, I want you to live life by the full, but you're not going to find the fullness in these things. It doesn't mean that you can't have these things or experience some of these things, but it's not about these things. 
and it's not about you. And that's a radically different way of thinking for anybody who lives in this selfie culture. And this selfie culture says, I should be at the center of everything. Let me give you an example. Three years ago, I came across this uh, picture in the New York Post, 2013. I don't know if you can make it out, but in that red circle, there's a man who wants to jump off a bridge. And this lady looks at it as an opportunity to get a really neat selfie that she can send to her friends. That's our values. When it's all about me, somebody can be killing themselves behind me, and I'm wondering, how can I get a picture of this? Now, maybe I'm reading into it, but I think the picture kind of speaks for itself a little bit. Now, in light of all this stuff, in light of all this maybe doom and gloom, the question is, we may wonder, how in the world can the church fight what seems to be such a losing battle? Here's the good news. I believe that all these conditions, and I've just, I've just touched the surface. I mean, there's so many things going on. But I do believe that all these conditions are ripe for a great work of God in our culture. I believe that with all my heart. We all have heard, we know about the Syrian refugee crisis, and by the way, we'll give you more information, but we're working on actually a family from Iraq, a Christian family from Iraq who's living in Jordan, fled from Iraq through persecution, sponsoring them to come and to live in Moncton as part of the Glad Tidings family. So we'll have more information on that. So we believe in responding to that crisis. But friends, I want us to understand this morning that we are on the brink of a societal refugee crisis over these next few years. Not just the Syrian, as important as that is, but our society is on the verge of a refugee crisis over these next few years that is bringing people down a blind alley to a place where people are going to finally realize, and many are already, realize that, hey, man, this is horrible. Life just doesn't work. I've been sold a bill of goods. I've tried everything. It's not working. I'm still empty. Life still doesn't work. Home doesn't work. Marriage doesn't work. Finances doesn't work. Whatever it may be, is there an answer out there? People are moving down that road. There is going to be a refugee crisis in the area of morality, in the area of sexuality. There's going to be a refugee crisis, and already there is in the areas of family and finances. And the church of Jesus Christ, every single one of us who move and live and work and minister among the crowds in the marketplace, we have an opportunity to stand in the midst of that crisis and to say, there's a way. There's help. There's hope. There's a response in Jesus Christ. You see, most of us understand that revival doesn't just sweep over a city. Doesn't happen that way. Revival begins in the church. And in beginning in the church, it affects the city. But how does it affect the city? It affects the city when the values of God's people change. When God's people begin to live counterculturally because we have been revived to the purposes of God. That's when revival hits a city. Revival hits a city when we as the people of God actually get excited about seeing God change lives. It's when we as the people of God actually have a burden for people who are lost and understand what it means to be lost, understand the heart of God for our city, how God loves our city, how God loves the person working beside me, how God loves that person that irritates me at school, wherever it may be, how God sees people, and I begin to get a heart for God, and I begin to get a brand new outlook, and God begins to change me. 
And all of a sudden, I get an awareness of need around me and brokenness around me or lostness around me or opportunities around me because as the Lord is moving upon my heart and filling me with himself, I realize it's not about me. And it's very difficult to go through a day just thinking about me or just thinking about getting through my day or, or through the week. I believe there are still some pretty dark and dismal days ahead. But I also believe that means that the conditions for revival are ripe, for revival to happen. In that same uh, Barna Omnipole, 1,000 people were asked this question. Which groups do you think it would be difficult for you to have a normal and natural conversation with? That was the question. Which people do you think it would be hard for you to have a normal conversation with? 73% of those surveyed said it would be hard to have a conversation with a Muslim. 60% said it would be hard to have a conversation with a Mormon. 56% said it would be hard to talk to an atheist. 55% hard to talk to an evangelical. 52% with someone from the LGBT community, from the gay community. Now, what does that show? One thing that it shows is that our society as a whole is very segmented. We are very tribalized. We tend to hang with people like us. Would you agree with that? We tend to gravitate. We tend to make our circle of friends, people who are like us, who think like us. We have our own little groups, and we find it very difficult to talk to or to relate to or befriend people who aren't like us. Now, that's just statistically from society as a whole. What is particularly concerning is that the study also found that evangelical Christians are some of the most significantly challenged when it comes to having these conversations. Let me give you an example. Among evangelical Christians who were surveyed, 87% said they would find it very difficult to have a normal conversation with a Muslim. 67% would have difficulty talking to a Mormon. 85% would find it hard to have a conversation with an atheist. And 86% said it would be difficult to have a conversation with someone from the gay community. That's alarming. That's absolutely alarming. If you consider the fact that we, as followers of Jesus Christ, the gospel, the church, Jesus, is the hope of the world. And if we find it difficult to have conversations with people outside of our tribe, then who's going to reach them? How will they know? I think there's a Bible verse that says something like that. Romans chapter 10, Paul says, How can they call on God to save them unless they believe in Him? How can they believe in Him if they have never heard about Him? How can they hear about Him unless someone tells them? Jesus calls us to be salt and light. But friends, that's only going to happen when we begin to dial down the rhetoric and dial down the fear and start having loving, healing, hope-filled conversations with people who don't believe the same way we do, who don't live the same way we do. What did Jesus say in Mark 16? He said, go everywhere in the world and tell what? The good news. To everyone. 
You see, what Jesus is saying is that the people of God who are filled with the Holy Spirit, who are witnesses, understand that wherever you go, there's no problem too big that God doesn't have an answer for. There's no deception, no lie, no darkness too dark that the light of his truth cannot penetrate. Jesus really is the answer for the world today. And he says you have good news to share. You know, one area, and I kind of say this tongue-in-cheek, but Excuse me, one area that we have to be really careful in is social media, especially Facebook. I mean, I don't know, friends, I read some posts, and we can come across looking really hateful and stupid. If we haven't learned how to communicate the truth of the gospel in a spirit of love and of kindness and of patience and of gentleness and of self-control. In fact, when I read my Bible, one of the things I discover is this. Jesus was more upset by the self-righteousness of the religious people than he was by the unrighteousness of the culture. Can I say that again? Jesus was more upset by the self-righteousness of the saints than he was by the unrighteousness of society. In fact, when I read the Gospels, it almost seems like it was easier for Jesus to reach the lost than it was to reach those who claim to know God. Now, it's difficult not to be upset by all that's going on in the name of tolerance. But if our only response as the people of God is just to yell at things we don't like, you know, it's kind of like the old saying when you're preaching, if you have a weak point, just shout louder. Somebody will amen you. They're not hearing what you're saying. And the problem with yelling is after a while, you don't hear anymore, do you? When people look at the church or believers sometimes and all they they see is crazy people who are angry at everything because there's no love in the message, what happens after a while? Nobody hears you. Nobody hears the message you have to share. Now, don't misunderstand me. Jesus didn't compromise. The Bible says in Matthew 3 that Jesus preached, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. There needs to be a repentance, a turning. But you know what repent means? It literally means to think a different way. It means a mind that's been deceived and darkened and, 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 you know, just distorted in his thinking. All of a sudden, light or truth, information, revelation comes in, and you think differently. You have a brand new mind. You have a brand new spirit, obviously. We come alive to God, but we think different, and we begin to walk a different way, not just in a different direction. We just begin to walk in every area of life in a different, in a different way as a different kind of people, and people begin to see how you walk, and there's something different about you in the way that you walk, and they're curious. And the conversations or the opportunity for conversation begins. When you look at Jesus, we see that his message was wrapped up in acts of love and compassion. And conversations that opened people to receive the message. If anybody was ever extreme, it was Jesus. But Jesus was extreme for the sake of the good news. Hear me. Jesus was extremely different from the spirit of the age. But he was also a friend of sinners. You see the difference? The devil, Jesus said, he has nothing in me. He has nothing in me, but I am in the world. I've come into the world to seek out and to save those who are lost. And the reason Jesus could bring freedom to those who were lost, those who were bound by the power of darkness, was because there was no darkness in him. 
So he lived in the world, but not of the world, as we know we're supposed to be as well. But sometimes we confuse what that really means to be not of the world. I mean, let's be honest. Is it okay if we're kind of transparent this morning? Is it okay? You're saying, why not? You got the mic. Now, you're probably different than me, but this is what I find in my experience, okay? And this is as a Christian, as a pastor, as a perfect person, okay? So that's how I'm coming across this morning. I find it a whole lot easier to hang out with people who believe the same way I do. That kind of tends to be who I hang with. In fact, we joke sometimes, we kind of have what we call this group of eight. Not to be clickies, but if we're invited somewhere, we're always sure the same other couples are there. We have a great time together, but kind of like the group of eight, you know. But here's the problem I find with me. Okay, you probably don't wrestle with this, but this is me. I find a lot of times that when I'm just with the same, not the same people, but just with Christians all the time or people who believe the same way I do, that it's not long before the conversation turns to all the things that are wrong with the world. You ever find that? You know, it's, it's whatever. It's now the transgender bathroom thing, or it's, you know, I don't know, it's, you know, ISIS, or whatever the case may be, it's always what's wrong with the world. But I also find that if I open my circle of friends, if I have coffee with, if I invite to lunch, if I have a conversation with, let's say, someone who is a Muslim, someone who is an atheist, someone who is a homosexual, someone who is whatever the case may be that's not only my, my circle of friends, what I find is that rather than just preaching now, I actually begin to practice the presence of Jesus where I am and conversations begin to open up about Jesus or about my life or who God is to me when you begin to build a relationship. Now, I've got to confess I think I already said that. Vanessa gets really nervous when I say, I've got to confess. Okay, but it's Mother's Day, so I won't confess anything about her. This is all about me this morning in the spirit of our culture. It's just all about me. But I've got to confess that all this news that we hear every day about radical Islam, it really clouds my understanding of God's heart for the Muslim people. Can I be honest with you? Now, let me, let me be clear. I believe with all my heart there needs to be a very strict screening of this whole refugee thing that's going on. And, of course, we know the threat of, of terrorists and so on infiltrating and, and coming into our country to weaken our country. Now, this is no new revelation. But when I was just praying about this a couple of weeks ago, and this, this may not be the Lord, but just a thought dropped in my mind. Could what is happening be God? Now, just stick with me for a second. We have about 10 million people who are confined to a country that don't hear about Jesus, who, under the threat of death, don't hear about Jesus, basically. Is it just possible that God may be in this, breaking down walls, that we have a flood by the millions of people who don't know Christ, flooding into Western cultures that preach Christ. Is that possible? Now, I know that many, many Muslim people, and Brother David would have better stats and information than I would on this topic, but many Muslim people come to Christ through revelation, come to Christ through dreams and through miracles, wonderful stories. 
But isn't it possible that the millions of people flooding to the borders may not just be a spiritual refugee crisis where the Lord is saying to the Western world, you who profess to know Jesus, that he really is the way. Here, have at it. There's a whole bunch of them. And they're good people. Many of them are nominal in their religion. They want to know God like anybody else does, but don't have the opportunity to hear. And now they do. And friends, we have story after story, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of Muslim people who are coming to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ because they've heard the good news as they fled for their own safety and security. We live in a very pluralistic society, and all that means that there's many different religions and ethnic groups and so on that live in one society. But we live in a day where the church no longer has the home field advantage. But I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. It can actually be a gift to the church. And I actually believe that the church can be a gift to our society. And how is that? Instead of being threatened by these many different worldviews, I believe we can be like the Good Samaritan. And we can try to find ways to break down the barriers and try to find ways to actually love people. We can find ways to have those conversations with people that actually bear real spiritual fruit. Now, let me be clear on something. Truth is found in the person of Jesus Christ. There is no other revelation of truth outside of Jesus Christ. I mean, there's truth is truth, obviously, but we don't believe, though we believe in pluralism, we understand pluralism, we don't believe in universalism. Universalism says that every belief system has equal value, it's all the same truth. We don't believe that. We believe that Jesus truly is the truth, the life, and the way. But having said that, we also need to understand that Jesus shows up in ways that we don't expect him to. And this is where my prayer has been, Lord, oh, challenge my heart. Break my heart. Open my heart. Open my mind to understand, Lord, how you see our city, how you see our culture, our society. Lord, how you would penetrate it. The message doesn't change. The need of the Holy Spirit doesn't change. The power of God doesn't change. Purity in the body of Christ. All those things don't change. But we live in a day today, I believe, where the Lord, who is all wise, can give us ways of understanding where he is, where he shows up, what he's doing, where he's stirring in our society. And saying, that's where I'm ministering, go there. That's where I'm doing something, be there. I'm stirring something in your workplace, in your school, whatever the case may be. That person that's kind of been in your heart that you've noticed once in a while, there's a reason you're noticing them. I'm doing something there. When you see the stirring of the mulberry trees, then get ready. Because I'm doing something and I want you to move. Most of us are familiar with C.S. Lewis's work, The Chronicles of Narnia. In one episode, for those who know the story, uh, Mr. Beaver is talking to Susan about Aslan. Aslan is a type of Jesus in the Narnia tales. And uh, he, she's, she's not met him yet, but uh, Mr. Beaver mentions that uh, Aslan is a lion. He's a great lion. And she asks this question. She says, Mr. Beaver, well, is he, is he quite safe? And she said, I shall feel rather nervous about meeting the lion. And I love Mr. Beaver's response, and you can bring it up. He says, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. He's good. He's king. But he's not safe. And I've really had to ask myself, Lord, are you safe for me? Is my faith safe 
Is everything kind of where I want it to be, where I've understood it to be, where it's been maybe for 20 years, 30 years, 50 years? You know, I just kind of see things the same all the time. All my, all my ducks are in a row. Is it possible that Jesus might just come into my life and just kind of knock all the ducks off the shelf and say, hey, it's the same message, it's a different day, I'm doing something new. Uh, there's things going on in our culture today that didn't go on when you were younger, you didn't have to deal with, but you have to deal with now, it's a different culture, and there's keys that I want to give you, there's things I want to show you, I want to stir your heart, change your heart, because I am good, I am king, but I'm not safe. And if your faith is safe, maybe you're not following me. Or he didn't say, maybe you're not saved, but you're just safe. Maybe you're not where I am. You're not doing what I'm doing. You, you don't have the heart that I have. Those are the things I've been asking myself. We know the words from Jeremiah. We, we love Jeremiah 29, 11. The Lord says, you know, I have a plan for you, says the Lord, a plan not to harm you, but to give you hope and a future. We love that scripture. A few verses earlier, the Lord says this. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says to all the captives he has exiled to Babylon from Jerusalem. I love that. That caught my attention. All the exiles that he, what do you mean, God? You wouldn't do this to us. We're your people. We got life figured out. Life is comfortable. We're Christians. This is a Christian country, yada, 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 yada. No, 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 no. Lord says, no, no. You see, you may be safe where you are, and you haven't noticed all that's going on around you. There's stuff, how many, how many of us understand that? There's a whole lot of stuff going on around us that we can be oblivious to. How? If we get seduced by the same spirit and we live by the same nine to five, the grind, the watch the news, the go camping. Sorry, I didn't mean to mention camping. Um, sorry, Greg, but <laughs> a little running joke. But whatever the case may be. You know, we just kind of got our life planned out. But when we plan it out, you know what happens? Life goes by us. The kingdom goes by us. The things the Lord is doing, where he is in our community, we don't see that because we, we fall into what is the norm. He says this in verse 5, build homes and plan to stay. Plant gardens. <laughs> That's kind of cool. Lord says, you're in captivity. What do you do? Build homes and plan to be here for a while. Because there's some stuff I'm going to be doing. There's a reason for this captivity. I'm going to be doing some stuff in your hearts, and, and I'm going to be doing some stuff at the end. And we see the fulfillment of that after 70 years Daniel talks about. But I like that, and I kind of feel the Lord is saying to the church, listen, you think things are bad? Build a house and stay a while. A lot of stuff that's going on is going to keep going. It's going to get darker. It's going to get harder. But I'm not telling you to flee. I'm telling you to get some roots. Stay a while. In other words... Make this your city. Make this your mission field. Make this your burden for prayer, your co-worker, whatever the case may be, whatever the issue may be, whatever person kind of irritates you because they don't believe the same way. Same way. Don't cry to me. Just find a way to get comfortable because you're going to be here for a while. I'm not going to take you out of this because I've got people for you to reach in the midst of this. Marry and have children. Then find spouses for them so that they will have many grandchildren. You may have many grandchildren. Multiply. Do not dwindle away. And work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it. For its welfare will determine your welfare. And so I'm wrapping up, but I wanna, want you to ask yourself this question that I've been asking myself. It is simply this. 
Am I in relationship with, do I have conversations with people who believe very differently than I do? Simple question. When you look at your cell phone, who are your fave five? Do we use that anymore? Is that the term? Five fave? I don't know. That was Rogers or something years ago. You know, who's on your speed dial? Look at your, at your you know, history in your, in your phone. Who you've been talking to for the last week? The point being, who are we making conversation with? Who are, we, who are we in relationship with? Are our conversations, again, predominantly what's wrong with the world? Or are our conversations with people that actually break our heart for the lostness of the world? And our passion is to be the presence of Christ where we are. And you know what? We have a lot of people in our church who are doing that kind of stuff. We get people who are a witness in the workplace, who are in the soup kitchens, who are, you know, all these different places in our community. We're going to be telling more of those stories on our website and actually from Sunday to Sunday to give you an idea of what God is doing through his people. And as I look over, I could, just, I could have people stand right now and just share some of those stories. But are there people of different religions, different worldviews that I'm making friends with, that I'm relating to in loving and respectful ways? I believe we're in a day where society increasingly sees Christians as just one-dimensional. And again, society is no less guilty than we are. We take a lot of our cues from TV. We believe a lot of the garbage. A lot of the messages on TV as far as what this group is like and what that group is like. We know it's not true. But in our culture today, a lot of people see the church as just one-dimensional. We're loud, we're angry, and we're critics of culture. But Jesus calls us to be people of hope who have good news. He said, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. Let your good deeds shine out for all to see, so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. Now, as I mentioned at the beginning of the service, the week after next, we are going to continue in a series called Come Get Your Fill. It's going to lead us into a weekend of special services, but it really is my prayer that every single one of us this morning, that we would open up to a fresh fullness of the Holy Spirit in us, and at the same time, a fresh outlook on a world that is rapidly and radically changing, but Jesus still has the answer. And I believe that's one of the most wonderful evidence of the baptism with the Holy Spirit. It's a baptism of love. It's a baptism of a burden for the lost. It's really beginning to see the world as God sees people, but also having confidence that God has the power to move in and to touch lives and to see them radically changed. Uh, Next Monday, I'm just going to announce this as I conclude. I have a slide there. We have a special roundtable with uh, Pastor David Hazard, who is our Assistant General Superintendent, and it's about same-sex attraction. Someone you love experiences same-gender same attraction. And uh, Pastor David is here for our district conference. He's not speaking at the conference, but David put this seminar on before, and I asked him if he'd be willing, since he's going to be here, to put it on again. And he's going to do that, and I've opened it to uh, pastors in our ministerial and any leadership they want to bring. But I want to just throw it open to you. I would ask that you send me an email or give me a call so we know how many to expect. If you're off that day, get away from work, whatever, or you're retired, you want to come and join us. But uh, it's going to be from 12 to 3, a week from tomorrow. And, and basically, as the, as the card says, uh, David is going to draw from personal experience uh, in his own family an issue that he's had to walk through. And he just brings, I think, some wonderful perspectives, some things you may not agree with. There's going to be opportunity for discussion and questions. But the point is, at least in this specific area, how do we begin to have conversations with people who are wrestling with these things 
Some who profess to know Christ and who do, but wrestle with it. And of course, many who don't that we want to reach. Jesus said in Acts chapter 1, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses all over the world. And he said, go everywhere in the world and tell the good news to everyone. How many understand it's a crazy world that we live in? You ever feel that way sometimes? There's a great big sea. It's the end of the world as you know it. You know, it kind of is. It's the end of culture as we have always known it. But Jesus is good. Jesus is king. Jesus said, all the power and authority is mine. Now I give it to you. Go in my name. Go in my name and minister. He is king. But hear me, saints. He is not safe. How many would honestly say this morning, Jesus, you are Lord and king of my life, but I don't want to be safe anymore. I don't want to pretend to have it all figured out in a way that, you know, isolates, pushes people away. Lord, I want to have a faith that's a living faith that goes into the highways and byways, that seeks out those who are lost, that they may come to know you. Lord, I want to have that conversation. I pray that you would fill me to overflowing. Renew my mind. Change the way I think. Change the way I look at things. Lord, I pray for real spiritual fruit in my life. Wouldn't it be wonderful to, to see the Lord answer that prayer? in us individually. Wouldn't it be wonderful? Just on a somewhat regular basis. It may even just be once a month, but almost every Sunday there's someone, there's a few, there's 10, 12 people who have somebody new with them that they had a conversation with Jesus about. Someone they could say, hey, I don't have all the answers to this, but why don't you come and see? Why don't you come on Sunday? We have people in our congregation here today who came as atheists, and nobody spoke a word. They just invited them to the church, and they felt the presence of God in worship. And now they're fully devoted followers of Christ. That's just the kind of business Jesus is in. He's the good God. He is king, but he's not safe.